Katie. I'm Erica. And this this is is Book Talk. Today we are talking to Tori Peters about her debut novel, Detransition Baby, and we are so excited. Um, Before we get to our cute little Q&A with Tori, we're going to do a quick recap and um, some discussion about the themes to kind of prime us for that conversation. So Erica, as we know, you are the biggest proponent of this book. You want to tell us about it? What happened? (laughs) What the, give us the 411. So Detransition Baby is about three main characters, Reese, who's a trans woman, Ames or Amy, who is a trans woman who has detransitioned and is living as a man. And Ames is dating Katrina, who is a cis divorcee. And Katrina becomes pregnant and the three of them decide for better or worse to try and uh, try parent this uh, new coming baby. And really through that process, all three of them grapple with their ideas of parenthood, both motherhood and fatherhood and everything in between, as well as what they can offer each other and trying to figure out their messy existences and lives and how difficult it is to be a person in the world. Yeah, I loved that all the characters <laughs> – I mean, that was it. That was perfect. Um, I liked that all the characters were, like, allowed to be flawed and nuanced and interesting humans, and they weren't, you know, here for their sympathy. This wasn't, like – they weren't this typical story told about these marginalized communities. They were just this really interesting, complicated, life-is-messy story told about these people. Like, they're figuring it out. It's sort of like what we talked about with Red, White, and Royal Blue, where, like, this is the story where being trans and Reese coming to understand what being a trans woman means and transitioning, like, that's actually not the point of the story. And it's not even a focal part. Like, we don't really learn that much about Reese. Um, And instead, it's really, like, what their daily lives are like what each of the main characters have gone through is like in the background and we're really just dealing with life and all of its messiness and I think that's important to hear stories that have more of the fullness of life's experiences rather than just focusing on person a found knew they were trans came out and now they're done and there's no, no there's no problem or even if there are problems it's all I don't know like that's the focal point of this and the focal point of detransition baby is really like what does it mean to be a parent how do we define gender and the roles of parenting with other people how can we raise a kid in a world that has this very like heteronormative view of what parenthood can look like and those questions are because these characters are trans right they these questions are not because of that, but they are, that is a, a integral point of this conversation is who these characters are, what their gender identity is. But coming to that gender identity and coming out as trans is not the focal point of the story. And I think that's what's, what is really interesting about it. It's also about like the love that the three of them have for each other in a platonic way between Reese and Katrina, although it's borderline platonic. It reminds me of like <laughs> borderline really, really platonic. close. Yeah. It's like really, really close female best friends where you're like, this is yeah. so intimate. Yeah. Um, at a level that is not quite platonic, but it's not quite not. Um, but they really do like love and care for each other. And I think they also have really good intentions, and yet they still hurt each other and they still fuck up. And that's also so relatable. 
The one thing, um, you know, that we always disagree on is that you love a book that has a open ending and I usually hate an open mm-hmm. ending, but mm-hmm. I will say this is, and I still did hate not knowing if they have the baby or not. Like I still, <laughs> I still don't love an open ending cause I'm just like, I'm such a curious person. Um, but I did like it because it's kind of a new situation. It's a new way of thinking about parenthood or raising kids and, because it is such a new situation, it doesn't tell you that like, this is the exact way that it should work out. You know, this is the way that you can make this happen. It like makes you kind of daydream about how that would, how that would look and how it would work. So I can say here that I appreciate the non-prescriptive ending and getting to kind of, wow, think about (laughs) what that could mean, not telling you will or will not work out. One of the things we'll talk about is like how, fruitful conversations about gender can be for cis people which is like unless you've had a deep conversation with a trans person of like what is womanhood a lot of us never question it because we've never really like had to and so actually asking that question like what does it mean to you can actually really change your own relationship with gender and can make you realize like, okay, what parts of this are really me? And what parts of this are things I've been taught? And what parts of this are things I've just accepted as fundamentally female? You know, or what's interesting to me is I feel like there are things that I've rejected because you're like, oh, that's so girly. Like the color pink. Yeah. And like, just like, oh, I'm not like regular girls. I don't do that. And now you're like, okay, that's actually like, I love pink, not because of any. Yes, but this is such an interesting thing in general is like, right. yes, what, is, what does any of that mean? But it's also, yeah, like you're like, well, I don't like the color pink because that's what they're telling me that I should like, but actually I do like it. So like getting to the bottom of all of that bullshit is like figuring out what you actually like. I feel like that's what your 30s are for. <laughs> like yeah. I feel like in, you know, I don't know, like at some point you're just like, Okay, what do I like? What do I want? I totally agree. I think it's also a lot of it is internalized misogyny. And I like how that was not front and center of the book. You know, like Milk Fed just there's this scene where so she is starving herself. And there's this scene where she she's goes through these like days where then she eats a lot and she'll just say like, okay, it's a free day. I have 24 hours. Let me eat as much as I can and we'll binge. And she is eating with this actor and she's like eating like a chili cheese dog, which is just so funny. (laughs) Um, But he says like, oh, it's so nice to be around a girl who eats. And it's sort of like this, like the cycle of like we expect women to look a certain way and then we punish them when they do the things to fulfill that. Like it's kind of this like cycle. And I feel like that's what I have gotten into with certain things in my personality is like, well, you know, with my voice, with liking things that are like silky and soft because I'm a fucking Taurus. Like, you know, it's like, oh, well, that's womanly. And so therefore it's stupid. And like, it's just like, I think some of this book takes a breath and says like, just have a question. What do you like? Why do you like it? And it doesn't have to be so serious. Yeah. You're allowed to like things that are feminine and soft and are these things. It doesn't have to mean that you're weaker or you're whatever that that society has applied to those things. I think the for people who are like new to this conversation, there's like obviously a lot of learning to do, but I think the biggest thing you can do is like have those conversations and don't be afraid to like stand up for people who who are different than you and to learn about it and like to do that work on your own. 
but then to figure out what it truly means to be an ally, like not posting, you know, one day a year, but what can you truly be doing? And how can you learn more? And also like what you can be doing. I also feel like a little bit of the discourse, quote unquote, is like, what are you doing? You lazy piece of shit sitting on your couch. And then it's like the insinuation is like you should be posting and like arguing with people online, which I don't think. But I think what Tori talks about is like, like have a conversation with someone, affirm them personally like support them personally like it's just like be a friend man be a good person but I really feel like one of the best things that you can do to be a good ally is do the work to fucking love yourself because if you don't love yourself you're gonna lash out at everybody else who is happy about everybody else who's on their journey and you're gonna be a miserable person and the best thing that you can do is to fix what's broken in you and to learn how to love yourself and to emanate joy and peace and love. And that is going to heal other people because then you can love them where they are without hating them for the insecurities that you have. <laughs> so anyways, transition, baby. What did you think of the book, Katie? That's what I want to know. I would say like a 4.5 out of 5. I feel like it was a super highly rated book for me. I loved it. I read somewhere that her writing was chaotic and indulgent. And I was like, oh, that, that's it. That's what it is. Like, it's chaotic in the best way where I was like, I have to find out what happens to these people and what decisions they make and what goes on. And I love the reimagining of like, what does parenthood or motherhood or gender really mean? And I love this book. Like, kind of allows you to explore those themes. The other quote that I want to say that I when I was reading about this book and this is how I described it last night was like there's no performance there's no pretending to be normal for the straight or male gaze like it is just it is what it is and some of the scenes are like a little raunchy or a little crazy and it's not apologetic for that and I I love the confidence that comes with somebody who writes about scenes that as Tori said like maybe people want you to think twice about and she is unapologetically not going to think twice about writing it. Yeah, it's un it's unflinching, I think. What did you think, Erica, in case we didn't already know that you're obsessed? Everyone already knows. Five <laughs> out of five. I loved this book. I think what I loved about it is like this to me is Yeah, why did you why did you love it? I think this is exactly why I read fiction books. Like I want to I wanna go somewhere, I wanna go through the blender and I wanna come out a different person. And that's I don't ever need the visual of going through the blender <laughs> again. I got chopped up, baby. Um, and yeah, I think that that's what this book did. I think, you know, it took me, it took me into a different experience, but it told me about myself and also something I didn't know before. And also, yeah, I've just felt a lot of all of the emotions. I feel like this is just a powerful piece of fiction that does what fiction is supposed to do. I do love, absolutely. I do love the multiple emotions in it. Like I love a book where you laugh and you cry and you're like, this is absurd. And also like, you're just like, Oh my God, I can't even imagine that. Like her freezing cold water or whatever it is. Like it's very funny and witty and also like emotional and happy. And there's these like really sweet scenes and these like, you know, there's just like a lot going on. And I like when books are like that. They really make you feel all the feels.
My name is Tori Peters. I'm a writer. I live in Brooklyn. Um, I've written two novellas uh, called The Masker and Infected Friends and Loved Ones, but probably most people know me for the novel that was published in January called Detransition Baby. Um, as is obvious in the title of the book with the baby reference, a lot of this book is talking about motherhood. And there's at least four different perspectives on motherhood throughout this book. So we have Reese, who really desperately wants to be a mother. We have Ames, who wants motherhood almost for Reese. And then Katrina, who seems sort of like ambivalent about motherhood. Um, and throughout, we have this narrative about how women can also mother each other and take care of each other on our journeys. So we would love to know how your own views about motherhood have changed throughout your life and what motherhood means in relation to womanhood. And what function does motherhood serve in your book for these women? I mean, it's changed a lot, you know, partly because I've, I've changed a lot over the course of my life. And I've had like a lot of different um, kind of perspectives on it. I'm, I'm actually currently probably as close as I'll ever come to a traditional mother right now. I have a, um, and my fiance has a 11 year old stepson and I've like started you know, taking care of him in a more, like, stepmom-style role. It's like a slow, you know, slow, slow thing. But it's funny because I did this, I wrote this whole book about, um, you know, sort of hypothetical, like, unconventional families and how one arrives at motherhood. And, like, I think there's, like, I forgot which, I think it was Alexander Chi said, like, be careful of the fiction you write because it has a tendency to come true. And, like, like I finished the draft and then I like met this woman and then like so much of what was in the book kind of happened for me but so now I'm my my mothering is more traditional but I think in in for the time I was writing the book and most of my um sort of 30s the mothering I did was like trans mothering which was like you know when a when a trans girl transitions oftentimes there's not a lot of people to show her kind of how to live or like, you know, how to be and, and to deal with things like anger. Sometimes it's like emotionally and sometimes it's just like, girl, like here's where you go to like buy some clothes. Here's where to get your hormones. Here where to, you know, it, it kind of depends on what the thing is. But I have like a, I have like probably three or four trans girls in Brooklyn who would say that I'm their trans mother. And, um, it's not really official. Like, I've heard people be like, Tori's my trans mom. And I've been like, what? No, I'm not, you know? <laughs> I was like, excuse me, we are not related. <laughs> and then, you know, there are other people who I'm sort of like, you know, I have, I have, I have one very recalcitrant daughter who just won't accept my authority, uh, but I'm, I'm working on her. Uh, and... Um, yeah, just one day she will learn. I, I am your mother, young lady, and I don't care. I don't care if you're 45. You will do what I say. Like, you know, like, um, so, uh, you know, there's there's that kind of mothering. And then, you know, I, I grew up in, I grew up in the Midwest in a sort of, um, you know, I think place where family units were very, very traditional nuclear families. And so I, I had um, very traditional ideas of what it meant to be a mother, you know, um, just with like, so the way that my friend's moms kind of took care of kids or 
I actually did do figure skating, which is from the book. So there were a lot of like skating moms, you know. Um, they're just that. So I had sort of those various advantages on motherhood. Um, and I kind of wanted to like throw them all in. At the beginning of the book, there was the, the sex in the city problem. I'll just like recap it real fast, which is that in sex in the city, you have sort of these four models for womanhood that are embodied by each of the characters and it's sort of they're sort of aspirational still for trans women although and whereas I think cis women oftentimes when they're looking for meaning in their 30s the problem is that they're stuck with one of these four models but you know it's sort of you can be uh, an artist and be like a Carrie you can be have, find a partner and be a Charlotte you can um, I can't believe I'm forgetting the Sex and City characters uh, Samantha <laughs> And Thank you. Have a career, and then finally the hardest one that the, is Miranda with the baby, and I think for a trans woman, you know, the har- the hardest of the four Sex in the City options is to, is to be a mother and have a child, and so I wanted to just go straight at that because I thought if I can have a trans woman dealing with motherhood, dealing with babies, you know, in order to do that well, the other three options, and it's a little tongue in cheek, obviously the Sex in the City thing, but. Um, the other three, the other three options end up getting addressed. Um, so, so, I, and that was like the thing that nobody really talks about with trans women is like, you know, there's all these sort of things where what's your pronouns or what, you know. And I was like, well, I want to know how do you live, and not how do you live like when you're 22. How do you live for an entire lifetime and do things like have families in a sort of society that where like things like nuclear families just aren't structured. Uh, really to make space for trans women. So I, I was like, motherhood is a way to really address this really particular thing. You know, in Katrina's life and also in Reese's life, it's sort of like a severing of like, there was the before and now there's the after. And you really can't take that choice back once you make it. Um, and I think we are getting to a place where we're allowing cis women to question whether they want that but even for them it's still very like this is the culmination of womanhood is to have a child um but I think what you're talking about in terms of motherhood is also like this passing on of wisdom and guidance Mm -hmm. and empowerment that is like when motherhood is at its best is it is what it can offer you and also for the mother to kind of have a legacy to pass on all this knowledge that you've accumulated to someone else and to see them flourish um it's interesting we're reading um we read the push by ashley audrain about like motherhood gone wrong <laughs> uh-huh. I, I haven't read that but I, I feel like there's like a thing happening now especially like during covid where like so you know so many mothers are um you know they're just so over overwhelmed you know there's all this work that's not being compensated and i've noticed that like there's all these books coming out about it like there's one um called night bitch by by rachel yoder that's coming out about like a woman who like um starts turning into sort of a dog or a wolf and it's like actually about like the needs of motherhood or there's the 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 need by helen phillips also there's all these sort of like dark motherhood narratives that are like happening right now something something in the zeitgeist anyway something is happening (laughs) yeah Yeah. it's still locked up for a year people are like we have to talk about this yeah Um, So Katrina has an important function in this book as a cis woman who's also um, kind of working through or suffering because of these gendered norms and expectations. Um, 
But she's also the progressive liberal who wants to reimagine parenthood and relationships. So she's kind of like half in, half out. She's wavering with that as well and not fully embracing it. Um, so we wanted to know why include Katrina in this story and what do you, I think why include her, what do you see for her beyond this book and what was the reason for including her narrative in it? Well, it's interesting, like, that you were talked about motherhood being like a thing, <clears throat> I think you just mentioned it, like a thing where it's like you make this decision and then everything changes. And I was, I'm interested in the ways, you know, obviously that has huge parallels with transition, right? You, tra- you make a decision, you transition, everything changes. And, um, you know, another thing where you make a decision and everything changes is divorce. And one of the things I was trying to do was triangulate all these different ways that women make these decisions to change their lives and like what it takes to make a decision and the ways that like making a decision like that one it can reinvent your life but oftentimes you give up so much to do it right like you give up a lot to be a mother you give up a lot to to have a divorce and so often it can and definitely you give up a lot to transition so a lot of times it can leave you either bitter or there's like all this work ahead of you and one of the things I wanted to do is I wanted to sort of create like try, like parallels or, or resonances or harmonies with the different ways that this happens. For, I dedicated the book to, to divorce cis women. And, and one of the ways that I sort of felt healed, because you know a lot of the situations in the book have parallels in my life, one of the ways that I felt healed, I think, really was in my friendships with divorced women, where I was like, oh, you're reinventing your life. And... I have to reinvent my life and like we actually have things to teach each other and like um, you know for me to to I mean some of my best friends are divorced women I, I, I kind of there's a divorce vibe that I really dig and um, so I'd like hang out with divorcees and like our humors just like was like we have the same sense of humor we have the same sort of like you know wine drinking on a Tuesday like cynicism kind of like and and I really loved it, and it was like, so for me, it was like, Katrina's in the book, because that's, that actually was, those friendships for me in my real life were very healing, they were like, it's not, this isn't a trans problem, this is a womanhood problem, this is a starting over problem, um, and being able to sort of talk across those differences and share with each other was actually, it made me feel like, oh, I'm not like, out here all alone, um, so it was natural to me that that she would be in the book. Um, there is like a, you know, at first actually Katrina when I when I first started writing the book, she was she had the same type of narration that um, Reese and, and uh, that Reese and, and Amy had like a sort of close third person in her head, and I started writing it and I realized that really what I was doing is I was because I'm, I'm not a cis woman, I was replicating the kind of writing that I'd read so many other places. And I was like, you know what? I actually trust that readers have read stories by pregnant cis women before. I trust that they've read stories by, you know, mixed race people, by Asian women. Um, I'm going to just, instead of trying to recreate this for Katrina, I'm actually just going to focus on the two trans women by being inside their head and kind of have... Katrina be a, a major character but approach her a little bit differently because I think I was I didn't have as much new to say about Katrina's experience myself um, and you know uh, so that's sort of like 
ended up, it was a technical solution in some ways, like in terms of the kind of craft of the book and how she is positioned in the book, which I think reflects kind of the way that I want the book to sit in, in lots of other literature. Like I don't want this book to sort of stand alone. I, I like to think of my books as being read like on a shelf of lots of books like them that make like a sort of cacophony of voices to tell a bigger story. And I, I felt like the other books on the shelf could do a bunch of the work that I would otherwise be kind of reinventing with with Katrina. Um, but because she's also like integral to the story and women like Katrina and the sort of ways that we've had to negotiate with each other in order to be community or friends or whatever um, is integral to my life. So that's why she's in the book. I think it is. We have read stories about Katrina. So even in reading it, that's a much more common narrative. You can, you can like imagine what she might be thinking and it doesn't need to be kind of the focal point of this book. Whereas the other perspectives then get their chance to shine and you get to be inside the head of those characters, which is much more powerful. But I also really like the triangulating between people in transition in different ways, people who are transitioning in and out of marriage or in and out of being a mom or into who they really are, like that there's so much to learn from each other and that, people have more in common and can relate more than sometimes we think like it's not yeah we're not that different we're not going through it you know things that are that different yeah I mean there's a lot of like I feel like in 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 just like this cultural moment that we're in there's a lot of sort of like stay in your lane type of you know ways of doing things and and I understand the history for that and I understand how it is but I'm also like really I'm interested in moments when people sort of you know when they do it well, when they sort of do kind of make imaginative leaps or do sort of see connections across difference, those are often moments to me where, where I'm like, oh, here's these two people come together. There's like, that's a generative moment. And like that actually provides ways to think through moving forward, you know, amongst different types of people um, together, you know? So I, I think about, Sometimes I think about the moves that I learn from, like, you know, black literature, and it's like, I don't, I understand that that literature wasn't written for me as, like, a white uh, reader, necessarily, like, those books are oftentimes addressing black readers, but I can basically be like, oh, these are, like, stories of liberation, or this is, like, literature of liberation, and in that my book, I think, in some ways, has liberatory moves, they actually can talk to each other under this bigger umbrella, um, and that kind of thing is exciting to me rather than like sort of strict, this is your lane, this is your lane, this is your lane kind of ways of seeing and doing things. I do think that's how you grow to support people who are not in your lane too. How you like grow together into making something better is by like being able to understand what you can learn from it. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great segue to the next question, which is, um, exactly that, like, you know, what Katrina has to offer in terms of recreating herself after a divorce and also what trans women have to offer in terms of like, I've really thought about this deeply. Um, and women, you know, constantly going through transitions. Like, I just feel like the book so powerfully to me told the story of like, we actually have so much in common and so much to learn to talk to each other and to, I don't know. I think it's just like we there's so much to I I I kind of saw your perspective as like, you know, cis divorcee women have been through this huge life change and they have so much to offer trans women. And I read this like 
wow, trans women have so much to offer us because cis women really haven't spent as much time thinking about what our womanhood means to us and what the expectations are around that. And it's powerful on both sides to think about the resonance as you would, as you just said. Yeah, totally. I mean, there's a, there's a sort of model that I think about, um, that was created by this woman in the seventies, uh, this writer named Joanna Russ. And she talked about sort of this, she was talking about mostly women's writing, but, but she called it the stages of marginalized literature and the first sort like the stages that, that writers in the minority go through, you know, marginalized identity. Um, and the first stage is, you know, like writing and speaking to the dominant culture and being like, we're just like you. Right. And then the second stage is like, actually we're nothing like you. And then the third stage is, you know, we 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 neither define ourselves against you or with you. We're like our own thing. And that's kind of what John Ross said at that point. But I actually think there's a fourth stage, and I've been I've been talking about this a lot, which is when the dominant culture begins to see themselves through the lens of the minority culture, so that like white people now understand our race through terms that were set by like uh, you know thinkers of color or black scholars. And oftentimes, uh, straight people understand themselves through like sort of queer or gay ideas about sexuality. That we're at this stage now where actually I think cis people are beginning to understand their gender through terms set by trans people. You know, like the ways that you understand, like instead of like, oh, I'm male or female, but like that you're like, oh, I'm doing a gender right now. You know, like. Like, if you're, like, you see Barbie and you're, like, oh, Barbie, she's doing a gender, you know, like, and and that that this is, like, how trans people for, for a long time have been thinking about our, our genders. It's, like, well, what gender are you going to do? You know, like, how do we do a gender that feels right for you? And there's so many genders and so many ways to do gender. What's your gender? You know, so when, when someone says, like, what's your gender? You know, generally I'm, like, oh, I'm a woman, but, like, if I if I'm with, like, trans people or certain, like, queers, I'm like, well, you know, kind of low femme or, like, you know, something like all these different ways of thinking about gender. And I think that that's, that's actually, like... And, and understanding the ways in which that is real and it's also kind of fake and it's, like, a joke, but it's, like, a joke I really mean, all of this stuff. I think that's really useful, actually, for more people than just trans women. And, um, and so, so I, I'm basically like, yeah, I think that like, trans women do have ways of thinking, trans people have ways of thinking that are useful to cis people, but also cis people have a lot of stuff that trans people need, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, both the sort of inclusion, you know, when I talk about trans women needing mothers, you know, right now it's mostly trans women that have to take care of young trans girls who, like, tell them, here's how to live, here's how to take care of yourself, and, you know, there's a lot of young trans women who could use guidance and there's a lot of cis women actually who have much more in common with those trans girls than I think cis women realize and those trans women could use their help, you know, definitely, you know, don't need the kind of fear that you see in some, you know, sectors of society. Uh, but it's, so that's, that's kind of like the exchange in the way that I see it. I mean, yeah. And, and the, I've always been interested also in writing sort of between people who have things in common. Like, like this book, I don't talk that much about like the patriarchy in the same way that like in a lot of my other writing about, you know, 
obviously patriarchy structures what women what women have available to each other but i'm i'm really more interested in the exchange between women in the same way that in a lot of my earlier writing i was really interested in in the ways that trans people talked to and fought with each other even though it was like oftentimes oppression like i didn't want to say like oh cis people are the enemy i wanted to like talk about like under the context of trans people working with each other how do we get along how do we don't get along so i'm 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 interested in sort of the ways that that groups come together and within these like umbrellas we fracture, we join, we you know, we fight, we and and that there's a kind of like beautiful ferocity in the way that women both, you know, attack each other and get together, you know. People have said this book is airing trans women's dirty laundry a quote, because each of the characters are flawed in their own ways um, and are portrayed authentically. So someone on Goodreads said that this book had no performance of normalcy for straight eyes, which is actually the sentence that I used to describe this book to my aunt last night, which is just very interesting. Like, I was like, this quote, this does it. You're going to read it. Um, So was this a deliberate choice and why is authenticity important, if at all? I mean, I think that... There's a couple of answers to that question. One is, I actually don't think that this book represents like all trans women, you know, like and and I, and and one of the ways to not represent all trans women is to not have idealized trans women, right? If you have individual characters who are like incredibly flawed and make their own very idiosyncratic mistakes, they then you, you know, the kind of stuff that Reese does. You can't be like, well, that's just what all trans women do because it's like the stuff that she does is just so weird and particular to her. You know, if it's like all trans women, they just run into the cold ocean, you know, doing the Wim Hof (laughs) method, you know. The Wim Hof method. I cannot. I loved that reference. (laughs) And it's like, I'm pretty sure that's not what all trans women do, you know, like. And so and I've always Uh, been sort of interested in not representing, you know, and that by not representing I get to say stuff that is, like, otherwise unpalatable, right? If I was, like... And, and the, the, the mistakes that these trans women make, like, they're really particular to, like, me and, like, my friends as, like, white trans women in Brooklyn. Whereas, you know... And, and making it really clear that these are really particular characters. So that if I make a joke about, like, how everybody wants... I mean, I'm always talking about, like, KitchenAid stand mixers because for the whole time I was writing this book, I really wanted a KitchenAid stand mixer with, like, a pasta. Did you get one? Attachment. Do you have one? I do. I have one. I'm so I'm good happy. at making pasta now. <laughs> so I'm an excellent pasta maker. Um, but the, like, if I'm, like, all, you know, if I say, if I have Reese say all trans women want a KitchenAid stand mixer, it's such a ridiculous thing to say that you understand, like, no, this is, like, a particular, like, bougie Brooklyn, like, white girl. And um, and then I can make other jokes. And, you know, those jokes are funny because they, they land on those particular people. Like, if you thought I was talking about, like, all trans women, including, like, Latina immigrants, like, you know, struggling in Texas, like, the jokes that I make wouldn't be funny if they were, like, all trans women. So... There's a way in which, you know, I'm not, it's not so much that I'm airing trans women's laundry as I'm just speaking particularly. And in speaking particularly, like, I, I kind of refuse the burden of representation. Um, and I'm, I'm interested, actually, in the ways in which 
a lot of the like my my influences um, in doing this are people who write so particularly that it kind of becomes in some ways universal instead of representing everyone they they do something so particular like I mean I know that these are both now problematic authors in some ways but I I really value them as sort of people who who had something important to say in a certain time even with all their flaws but Juno Diaz and Philip Roth you know those are Juno Diaz writing really specifically about like Dominican immigrants in uh in, in in New Jersey and and Philip Roth writing about Jewish Jewish you know second generation in Newark and um, second generation Jews in Newark and all of that stuff they they wrote so particularly about those people and they kind of sold them out so so well that you couldn't say this is for this is a story of everybody you're like this is really really particular people. But in, in a certain way, those books became universal, right? We were like, this is the, like, people teach Philip Roth as, like, the immigrant experience or something like that, you know? And, or, or Juno Diaz is, like, part of, like, immigrant literature. And so in some ways I was like, if I write these really, really particular trans women, it can kind of become more universal without really having to do the work of representing was, was my belief about it. And... Um, you know, if people think this is all trans women, all you have to do is say the things that the characters do and you realize kind of how ridiculous it sounds that uh, all trans women do these things, you know. And I think that's also like the particular way that they're presented in the book is also how you fall in love with people. It's like just one person, like you get to know Reese so well in this book that you're like, I love this girl. Like, she is hysterical and like you know she they become real because they're flawed they're not this like archetype or prototype of like the ideal person which no one can relate to it's like no this is your friend who you see in all of their realness and all of their peculiarities um, exasperated with them exactly. <laughs> that's a good way to just yes you're right you're frustrated or you're happy like it it's nuanced which is which is good so the next one I wanted to talk about, um, when Erica first recommended this book, just like she read it first and then I read it in um, two sittings. So just like very quickly. Um, but she read it first and I was like, the word detransition being in the title, um, I know that word specifically has been weaponized against the trans community in many ways and it's still kind of a hot button word. Um, and so I wanted to know what made you want to include this, this aspect of detransition in this book. Um, and this aspect of Ames' journey in that book and in the title, I guess. Well, one of the things that I want, I've always been interested in my writing is sort of naming shame. Like that shame is oftentimes very painful because you can't talk about it, you know. Um, whether it's like there's all sorts of different shame, but but shame kind of lives in the thing that you can't speak, right? And then other people, because you can't speak it, other people get to do whatever they want with that story you know yeah so um so I've always just been like I'm going to speak the stuff that you're supposed to that's that I think is working along valences of shame so like the 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 detransition narrative um you know I think that there are people who detransition and they oftentimes detransition because it's you know not because they aren't trans but because it's very hard to be trans and then when they do they have a lot of regret and they have a lot of shame 
that you know they couldn't do it, or that you know people aren't gonna, people are gonna you know think all these things about them or or whatever. And when people have shame and regret, then it's usually a subject. The thing that they have shame and regret about because they can't people can't speak it. It it's, becomes easily weaponized. You know. You see this in all sorts of ways, things like sex work, things like sexual assault, you know, like they become things that belong to the people who didn't actually experience it. And so detransition was sort of a thing that's happened in in trans community where, where people have regrets or people have shame and they can't speak it. And I kind of want to be like, well, what if we did speak it? You know, what if we talked about regret uh, with, with transitioning? It's really, transitioning is really hard. And it doesn't always work out. But also, maybe it's also okay that they, sometimes it doesn't work out. Like, that doesn't mean either you aren't trans or you made a big mistake or something like that. It, it just, maybe it, it didn't work out, that, that things weren't aligned to do this very hard thing. Like, if I wanted to be, my, my example for this is like, I have two. One is like, if I moved across the country for a new job and uh, it didn't work out, it doesn't mean that nobody else should move across the country for new jobs. It just means like, whoops, I have to go home for a while and like kind of regroup and like see everybody that I left and be like, whoops, I didn't, didn't pull it off, you know? And, um, and that like, let's bring down the tone on this a little bit. Uh, and then I think that, and the reason that I want to do this isn't just for like the sort of larger public conversation, but for people who transition and detransition to be able to talk to each other, to be able to feel like if you detransition, you don't have to be like ostracized. Like you don't, you you don't have to be in pain. Um, and there's not like the detrans. In order to detransition, you have to have once transitioned, and that means that there's we're together. We've gone through this experience. Like let's not let's actually talk about what happened, why it worked, why it didn't work, so that like more people in the future can be okay. So as a result, it was like, I actually feel pretty entitled to this term. Um, also, I'm going to put it in the title of the, of the book as a sort of like signal, like this is, what, this is what this book is about. You know, like if you see the word detransition and you can't, and like you're horrified at the title, well, then definitely don't open the first page because it's only going to get worse from there. That's, that's like, it's sort of just signaled, like, this is the way that I'm going to talk about it. Mm. And, you know, it's kind of like a, in a certain way, like its own content warning. Like I see people, mm-hmm. you know, mostly trans people will be like, I saw this book that said detransition on that thing. And right. I'm like, not for you, you know, <laughs> like. So. Right, not a content warning for you. I think even when you're talking about that, I can hear that you're still like, interested in these themes of how people can connect and how they can find, find more in common. So even with that, like you don't have to be ostracized. We can find a way to still like, form a connection. Everyone can still be okay. Like there's enough space for us all to figure it out. And there's that. And there's also another thing, which I'm going to you know say, which is that like, I don't like to give credence to like transphobes. Right. So like if, if, and I'm not, I don't like to be distracted by them. So they, they decided that they were going to take this word and they were going to weaponize it, and they were going to make it so that I couldn't ever say it or use it. And and I just basically, I don't have any respect for that. I don't have any time for it. I don't care. So, you know, that lots of times people will be like, oh, you use this word detransition that's been weaponized. And it's like, well, yeah, 
just because like assholes took something doesn't mean I'm going to let them keep it, you know? And that's, that's kind of also my attitude in terms of, of deciding to talk about it. Like that's not their word to, to, to own. So, you know, and I'm not even going to be like, give it back. I, it's like, I already have it too bad. It's also like, it's to me, I think it's funny because there's two experiences. There's the experience that you have when you first hear the title of the book and then you read it and you're like, oh, it's actually tongue in cheek because it's literally what is happening in the book, right. like giving the plot away. <laughs> um, but yeah, I just, I think it's so funny. I grew up by this corner store <clears throat> that had this big um, Virginia Slims ad that, you know, the Virginia Slims tagline used to be like, you've come a long way, come a baby, you know? And so, and I remember being like, I, like when I could first read, I was like six years old or something. And I've been like, you've come a long way, baby. Like, and like, I didn't, cause I'm not like, I was like a six year old. I wasn't walking around like addressing people as baby. I didn't understand it at all. You know, I was like the, like, what, what is this? And so I was like, what is the baby? Like who, what, why is there a baby in the cigarette ad, you know? And I feel like that little, and then, you know, then of course there was like hasta la vista baby and like all these, like the, the, like the baby. Um, but I think it's just like left over in my head from like, that was probably like my first literary puzzle was the Virginia Slims ad, like as a six year old or whatever age I was like, what, what is that? So like, <laughs> what does it mean? Yeah. That's so funny. Um, so this kind is also God. We're segueing in and out of these questions so well. It's yeah, like, Wim Hof again. We get to keep yeah. talking about it. But I, yeah, I do think like you know this book. I felt very like I feel still have a, I still have a hard time explaining why I love it so much. I feel very emotional about it. I think the book had a lot of highs and lows. In particular, I want to shout out the doTERRA scene and the Wim Hof at Jacob Reese Beach. Like, I was crying. I was laughing so hard at both of these scenes. Um, but there are also times where I was crying and where things were very deep. So there were lots of highs and lows. How do you want your readers to feel after having read this book? There's this Russian word that I'm going to just completely ruin like, I don't know how to say it. I barely know how to spell it. It's like posh lust or something like that. So, but it, it, anyway, it means like the way I understood it in this like Nabokov essay I read about it is like, it means like, it's like wet almost. It's like you just throw everything at a piece of writing. You just saturate it in every single emotion. And um, I've always liked that where a, a writing is like, you know, I know that, like, minimalist writing is oftentimes in vogue, but, like, the writing that just, like, kills me is the writing where it's, like, this thing did everything, and it, like, turned, like, paragraph to paragraph. I thought I was laughing, and then I just, like, would be sobbing, and then it'd be, like, I'd feel creeped out, or I'd feel, like, haunted, and then I'd feel, like, you know, like, <clears throat> it's, like, when I read the Ferrante books, I knew I loved them, because I was just, like, I had 30 emotions in 30 pages, I think that's what I come to fiction for is, is oftentimes, you know, the, all of the emotion and oftentimes like, you know, one of the emotions is sort of getting to puzzle something out intellectually, like that, like the satisfaction, intellectual satisfaction has in some ways like an emotional resonance to it in, in some writing. So it's like, it really can do everything. Um, the books that I aspire to, um, and I hope, 
you know, I hope that that's how I get to continue to write. Okay, speaking of what you're writing or what you would like to keep writing, are you writing anything else now or what are you working on next? Um, I wrote a pilot for this show, for a show based on this book, like a 30-minute dramedy. Yay, that's so exciting. It's currently out with the network, so it will either... In the next like couple of weeks, I'll know if it's happening or not happening. I, oh, my it's, oh my god, so could exciting! Could be really could be and go either way. And I know that like so many of these books that where you get offered, you know, die in development. But it was really fun to write a like a a pilot, like a thirty minute like comedy style pilot. Um, so I did that, and then I have a book that. I've started writing that I'm calling my queer financial thriller, which are not usually words that go together, but Wait, um, I kind of love that though. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I say it to people and like both queers and finance people are like, what? Like, <laughs> <laughs> like neither one of them understand it. They're queer financial. Thriller. <laughs> um, but it takes place in Chicago and it's like, it's sort of like hustlers meets Breaking Bad meets um, The Big Short meets... I'm just going to just throw, keep throwing amazing right, all the references out. <laughs> yeah. Great Gatsby. That's it. Okay. <laughs> all of them together. One novel. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I don't know. I've got like 10,000 words on it. that I And I didn't do anything because I was like so kind of exhausted with this book coming out and... and um, you know, my profile is so different um, this April than it was in, in January. Like, you know, I had, I came from doing things like self-publishing and just like these tiny scenes. And so the sort of, the it was a little bit tiring to sort of re-envision, you know, my, my voice and who I was talking to and, and to some degree what I could get away with when I thought I was speaking to like this tiny group in Brooklyn and suddenly I'm speaking you know on NPR it's like oops suddenly you're everywhere I said yeah that I knew I was on NPR. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah and and it can be really chilling right like it like one of the things that I liked about my writing is that I didn't care who was listening in partly because I didn't know that anybody ever would be and suddenly now I'm like oh people might actually listen to what I have to say and and so I feel myself like censoring or editing like Mm -hmm. you know things and I have to be like no that's a funny joke like it stays even though I know that like in four years I'm gonna have to like explain it on the radio (laughs) someone's gonna ask (laughs) me what I meant by that (laughs) I mean it's so it's sort of sort of strange because also obviously it's lockdown so it's like my life yeah it's not like my apartment changed when the book comes out so it's like well everything's kind of the same except when I go online and so Mm. there's kind of been like a a recalibrating in terms of that and then um kind of realizing that like I have to just keep doing the same stuff I've always done um that this is exactly where I wanted to be for so long and I worked so hard to get to basically be able to you know when I when I wrote the novel before I was like I don't know if this book is going to get published I don't know if anybody wants to read it and I always wanted to get to a place where it's like no I have people who are waiting for like whatever I do next Mm -hmm. and in some ways like remembering like this this was I got where I wanted to go and now that I'm here like 
do it, do something with it, you know, like keep working and stuff like that. So, um, so I'm, I feel like I'm finally kind of recalibrating to that. There was, there was like, I mean, the women's prize came out in the UK. It was, it was long listed for the women's prize. And that was, I got like my first real backlash, you know, for that. And it was like, oh, like, wow, this sucks, you know? It was like, I, I had a never experienced kind of, you know, obviously I'd seen like hate um, before, but I'd never had it directed towards me. And I was like, wow, this this could be, this is different, <laughs> putting, putting your book in the world and getting this kind of backlash. So, um, so I kind of had to move through that and, and in some ways separate from the book where it's like if someone says something hateful about the book, I can't internalize it and I have to sort of make the book separate from me. And, and I, I think I'm on the far side of that and like now I'm excited to, to do the next one. It's hard to separate it when it's like become such a product of like love and work and labor and then you're yeah. like, this is no longer a part of me now. I have to like yeah. <laughs> set a boundary. Yeah. It's really difficult. And I mean, luckily, like I did finish it two years ago you know, in, in, in real time, even though it came out just this January. So in some ways I'm like, uh, you know, some of the things in there, I'm like, oh yeah, well I said that five years ago, but you don't expect (laughs) me to still, you know, think that like, I don't, you know, that's not really me anymore. And, and that also like helps to, to, you know, create a little boundary like with time. I think that was all of our questions. Oh, we we got to ask the most important question. (laughs) We always ask what everybody else is reading. So what else are Uh, you reading right now? I'm going to give the most boring answer, but it's true. Okay. I'm reading Moby Dick for the first time. Oh, wow. Uh, I kind of love that. (laughs) um, I've been reading like all these, you know, people have been asking me to like blurb lots of stuff, like lots of trans books. And I have, I've been blurbing like, everything that people have asked me to do and then I was like for this next book like that I'm trying to write I feel like it's a little bit more ambitious than anything I've ever done before and it's like a little bit um like just it's beyond my skills right now like I'm gonna have to become the writer who can write that book and so I decided since I was like well I've read I've done all this like you know, sort of literary community work. Like it's, I just want to do something completely off the, off, off of that. And I just want to read a book that is like known for being wildly ambitious and try and like steal these moves and, and like the hubris to do it. You know, it's like, I'm going to read Moby Dick and I'm going to tell myself (laughs) I could do this. I could do it. Are you loving it so far? (laughs) It's really funny actually. Like I think I'm about to turn 40 and I tried to read it when I was like 20 and I was like, this uh, is deadly. It was just deadly. Uh, and I now think that there's things that I thought were, like, earnest and deadly, I now understand are jokes. Like, that the, bo- <laughs> that the book is, like, these sailors who, like, say weird things to each other. Like, before I was like, what? Just a bunch of jerks. I don't understand this book. And now I'm like, oh, they're teasing each other. Like, this is a funny book. Um, and... <laughs> And they're like making fun of like the human foibles or something, and and uh, so I'm I think I'm now at a stage to to understand the foibles of 18th century whalers, I guess. 
What a specific group of people. <laughs> I understand. Yeah. I love that. I'm, I'm just a mind meld. Have you ever read Moby Dick or did you ever read it? I read it like in college, but yeah, it's been forever. I feel so, I have like book amnesia. Like once I finish a book, I'm like, what do, don't, they're like, oh yeah, you like that book. What was it about? And I'm like, I couldn't tell you. I, it's completely gone from my brain. The so only I ones like I can do that for. the Moby Dick yeah. file. Like the book talk, yeah. the talk, the books that we do on book talks, what I was trying to say. I feel like we spend so long talking about them. Those ones I can remember. Anything else, I'm like, two months later, I have like, that's it. I'm like, I don't know. I mean, I know I loved it. I sort of, I sort of hesitate to say that I was reading it because I was like, people want recommendations. And if you say Moby Dick, they're like, I'm never going to read that. Thanks. We're like, not reading that. <laughs> <yet>. No. <laughs> we, um, thank you so much. No. <laughs> I want to recommend a book called Time is a Thing That a Body Moves Through by T. Clutch Fleischman. Um, Clutch is like a non-binary writer. The, and um, the book is just like, really gorgeous like the prose is just absolutely gorgeous so um and it's clutch has just a totally different way of seeing the world than i do um while still being trans and so i i recommend it just because i think it's like it's a, a very wise book um and i think it's the type of book that is ahead of its time i think like in 10 years people are gonna be like reading it in colleges and right now um it, it's like we're just coming to understand the things that Clutch has been saying for a couple of years. Um, and also it's really accessible. Like it just, it's a really, a really amazing book. Um, so that's the book I want to recommend. Awesome. And Moby Dick. <laughs> and Moby Dick. Talk is made by me, Erica Bailey, and Katie Cheney, with production support from Dan White. Our theme music is by Dan White. We'll see you next week. We will take recommendations if you have other things for people that you would recommend for them. I will. I will. I won't just okay. do. I'll be like, well, so Moby Dick and uh, Great Gatsby. Virginia Woolf is great. Uh, uh, War and no, Peace. Uh, if you have a weekend. War and Peace. Uh, <laughs>